So I had a really funny and interesting introduction that I have to skip because of how much content we need to get to. If you want to hear that interesting introduction, just pull me aside sometime this week and I'll tell you. You'll laugh. I'll laugh. It'll be great. Um, but we have to just jump right into it. It's a camp talk, so it's a little different. It's going to be a little heavier in content, but plenty of exhortations as you know me. Um, I'm really excited about this. Let me tell you kind of where we're going and then we'll jump into it. The question that I'm kind of tackling is why did God give us mothers and fathers? And so there's four parts of this teaching. Number one, we need to start kind of where Pastor Ross started. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And if you want to understand what what it means to be made in the image of God, you need to know what God is like. So we're going to look specifically on how God is like a parent. Or essentially how God is a parent. Number three, we're going to look at ten ways we can imitate God. And then number four, what parents are called to do for their children. In a future teaching, maybe a Wednesday night all church meeting, I want to go specifically on the unique roles of fathers and mothers that are distinct. Um, But we don't have time to get into that. There is more overlap in my study and research than there are distinctions which was really interesting in my research. But there's more overlap in things that both fathers and mothers do the same together than there are unique ones that only one does. But we will get to that in the future. I'll tease on it a little bit. But I need to pray because I am weak and I barely slept this week and I've been fighting sickness and uh, I feel like this this is not good enough for you. I, I rewrote this sermon multiple times. I just couldn't get it right. It was one of the harder sermons I prepped. And um, I know that if I was 20 years older, this would be significantly better. But I'm not 20 years older. And so you have to deal with what I have, <laughs> where I'm at right now. And so I, I want the Lord to meet us because ultimately at the end of the day, you're not ultimately helped because I'm old or wise, but because this is God's word. And as I'm faithful to this, then we're hearing from God, not from a... 35 year old so that has four kids right who are young so what do i know um god knows a lot so let's pray let's pray father i need you you know i actually need you more than i know you know how bad i need you <laughs> but i feel it and i feel weakness in my throat i feel weakness in my attention i feel weakness in this sermon manuscript feel a weakness in all the different things that we can cover that we don't have time to. So I pray that in light of all those weaknesses and more than I don't even know or can't voice, that you would meet us, you would help us, that this would have generational impact and help for us, strengthen us parents. It would inspire singles and frame these biblical truths in a helpful way. Help me be a helpful servant, steward of your word, herald of your word right now strengthen me give me the ability to be concise to be helpful to be clear holy spirit speak through me through your word come holy spirit help us come holy spirit do what only you can do in jesus name we pray amen All right, we're starting back in Genesis like we did last session with Pastor Ross. If you missed that, it is recorded. Yes. Yes? So you can take a listen to it. This is building upon it. 
So I'm assuming you know some things, but I will try to recap where it's, it needs to be. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27. If you have a Bible, please do look at it. We're going to look at it briefly, but it's important to know this passage because it's so foundational to the entire arc of Scripture and what God is doing. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. I'm going to read part of 26 and then all of 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, which was a very important emphasis that Ross rightly gave last session. Both man and woman are equally made in the image of God. And we're going to talk about that a little more. But let me remind you what this whole image language is. So in an ancient Near East context, they would have idols. And I know that a lot of times we scoff at idols. Like, how could they worship an idol? But often they wouldn't think the idol is God, but the idol would be a conduit, a representative of God. So they didn't actually think that thing that they just made was actually God. Rarely would they do that. But it was a conduit. It was a way for them to worship uh, a living God. Other conquerors would do this as well. They would set up statues in places they conquered so that even if you never met the conqueror or the king, you would know what the king is like by the image, the likeness of his statue or the idol. And so this imagery is being used by Moses to help us understand a more remarkable reality that is inherent to what God has done in creation with humans. Rather than creating statues to give others in the world a picture of what God is like, he created people, living, walking statues that show what God is like. Both his character and show what he does as well. In this passage, we see specifically this word dominion. So let's just say in short, ruling and reigning. But we are not called to rule and reign on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of God. So one of the things that it means that we are made in the image of God is that we are co-regents, co-rulers. We are stewards of what he is doing, and we are extending his rule and reign, and it's not our rule and reign. And when we get that mixed up, and mankind often does, that's where everything goes haywire. We are not the rulers, we are co-rulers, and it's his vision of the world, not ours. So fundamental to being human, not just being a husband or a father or anything like that, any role, but just being a human is that we rightly reflect who God is, what he's like, and as well extend his rule and reign in appropriate ways. Now, let's consider what God is like, not exhaustively, no one can do that, but specifically, how is God like a parent? How is God like a parent? The Bible speaks of God as a father hundreds of times. But it also speaks God is like a mother a handful of times. One thing that was interesting in my research is that God is titled as a father. But when he is spoken as a mother, it's always spoken in his likeness of a mother. He's never titled as a mother. That's why we never say our mother who are in heaven. God never reveals himself In that way, and so therefore we bow ourselves to Scripture's revelation of how God chooses to reveal himself, and he never chooses to reveal himself as a mother, though there's a number of times where he is like a mother. He has many traits that mothers often hold. 
But please do not make the common mistake or wrong conclusion. Remember, God is a spirit according to John 4.24. So he doesn't have a gender. He doesn't have a biology, a body. What we often do is we start with man and then consider God and try to make sense of how that works. So we hear that God is a father or like a mother. And so we're like, okay, well, I know fathers. Like I have one kind of or this or that. And so God is like a man. Right, we, we, we wrongly start downward and move upward when we ought to start upward and move downward. We consider, actually, that God is the first father from eternity's past. He always was a father. So when he creates a human concept of earthly fatherhood, it's a reflection, a mirror of what he always has been. So we start with him and then work backwards. We don't start here and then try to figure out what he is. Does that make sense? But naturally, we all will do what we see. So when we hear father, we think of our dads and and so forth. But here we make another mistake because you probably heard that women, uh, that God is never called a mother. So you could wrongly conclude that women are not equally made in the image of God. Or mothers are not equally made in the image of God. Because the majority of descriptions in the Bible are masculine in nature, though there are a handful of feminine ones. God has characteristics that are typically associated with mothers. And again, it would be wrong to start with earthly mothers and then conclude conclude that God is female. Or think that there is a separate female God, as some people have taught over the years. But rather, both fathers and mothers give us a clue collectively of what God is like. Fatherly and motherly traits are actually sourced in the very heart and character of God. And they're expressed in fathers and mothers in different ways. Does that make sense? Tim Mackey, the kind of the head over the Bible project, says this. There are two genders, but these two genders together make the image of God. God is neither wholly reflected in one or the other. It's their oneness and difference that reflects the image of God. In other words... Not any individual one of us can properly image God. Men cannot image God by themselves. Women cannot image God by themselves. And the beauty of God's design is both men and women together, not always in marriage, but just in general as well, collectively give a greater, accurate picture of what God is like. I love that. And hopefully that encourages you sisters in here that you don't feel like oh it's only the men no actually we if we don't have you we can't image god properly we can't not like we can almost do it and kind of need you we we can't collectively we image god so putting this together when we now consider fathers and mothers we are called to give children an accurate image of the likeness of god as well extend god's rule and reign to our children, and eventually through our children as we train them up. So let me now kind of just say, okay, in light of the image of God and what God is like as a parent, what does that mean for us who are parents or future parents or care about caring for parents? What does that mean for you? What is our mission in our parenting? Well, using Genesis and the, and the attributes of who God is, character of God, this is how I sum it up. Number one, we image God to our children and world. That's the first task you have as a parent. You image God to your children. You show them his likeness. Number two, you extend God's rule in a reign to them and then through them. 
Number three. Number three, two, through them. So that actually kind of sounds like disciple making, doesn't it? It it really is. That's what it is. But I'm using Genesis language here. So let's start off with this first one. What does it mean to image God? Look at Ephesians chapter 5, would you? Would you flip to Ephesians 5? We're going to, this is going to be one of our key texts we're going to build off. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Worth worth your memory, very short, three parts to it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. If you're there, say there. There. You need a minute, say a minute. There. There. All right, good. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The therefore here is super important, as you guys have been taught over and over again. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to say, why is it therefore? And it pushes you backwards. And if you keep reading backwards, it will, you'll see another therefore, and it'll push you backwards. If you keep reading backwards, it'll say another therefore. So it just keeps pushing you back. And if you've studied Ephesians before, what you will be reminded is that Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is telling us what God has done through the gospel and who we are now in light of all that in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 is going to tell us how we should live in light of that. We're not earning, we're overflowing. If you don't get chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6 will either crush you with the impossible weight that it is to obey any of those commandments, or lead you into a destructive path of self-righteousness. So, later when you have time, just read Ephesians chapter 1 through 4 later tonight. But let me remind you that you have to keep in mind the gospel. Because what I'm going to teach and say for the rest of this teaching, if you do not have the grace and the gospel in mind in the forefront, you will feel crushed by this. Because the call and the task of imaging God is one you cannot do. God is calling you to do that which you cannot do. So you need power that you do not have. And if you are not rooted and grounded in the gospel daily and have that forefront in your mind, you will be crushed by this. You'll give up on it or you'll be self-righteous because of it. So we have to have the gospel in mind because the, t- the task called to fathers and mothers is impossible. You literally cannot do it. And if you do it on your own strength, you are, again, going to be self-righteous or crushed. So before we get into the command, consider the second part, which is key. Would you read this out loud? Would you read this line? As, as beloved children of God. Can you say that one more time? As beloved children of God. We are not imitating some distant tyrant or imitating some mere creator, which he is our creator, but imitating our heavenly father who's crazy about us. Imitating one who loves us deeply. It reframes and changes everything. So as as those who who are deeply loved children of God, we are then commanded to imitate our daddy, our heavenly father. And now consider... How does this verse relate to parenting? Well, he calls us to imitate God. But what do we know about children? What do children do? They imitate who? Yeah. We've all seen it. We've all done it. This goes in multiple directions. The good, the bad, the ugly. How many of you have found yourself doing the very thing you swore you will never do, but find yourself doing that your parents did to you? You hate it. Anyone? Anyone's ever done that? 
I will never do that. And then you do it and you're like, oh, goodness, God, help me. Right? It goes for the good, too. Things that your parents did, you just internalize. It's caught more than taught. And you say something, you have a mannerism, whether it's just funny, you know, something you do with your hands or whatever it is. Or a saying you say, one of my kids right now keeps saying, are you kidding me? Or is it, are you joking me? Are you kidding me? And we're, we're so annoyed by this person. They keep saying it, one of our children. And we're like, dang, we say that too, too much, right? Over everything. So they're doing what we do, right? And sometimes they do good things too. Like recently, Joanna overheard Eden and Mercy were taking a, a shower or a bath together. And uh, one of the habits Joanna and I have, we take them on dates on a, on a, on a rotation. And we always ask them, how can I be a better dad to you or a better mom to you? And our kids tell us. And one of my kids, Eden, asked Mercy and said, Mercy, how can I be a better sister to you? <laughs> Where did she get that? She got it from imitating us. We never told her to do that. And you know what Mercy said? She said this. She said, do whatever I tell you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That for sure, for real, she said that, right? Yeah. If, if you think that the culture created the idea of self-love, it's in the human heart, yeah? You can love me best by doing whatever I want you to do. Um, but for better, for worse, our kids will imitate you. Those who you have proximity, whether you're a parent or not, will rub off on you. Those who are most prominent will rub off and you will imitate them. So this is a weighty responsibility. We have to be thoughtful about what our kids will be imitating. And to see what they will imitate, we have to regularly check who we are imitating. Right? You following that logic? All of us are going to be imitating someone. Whoever or whatever vision or person is most prominent in our life will dictate who we will imitate and become. If you are regularly binging on TV... You're going to imitate what you watch. If we're regularly on social media, you're going to imitate those influencers or friends. If you are a workaholic, you will be warped by the idol of your work. As Greg Beal has famously said, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. What we watch, what we meditate on, what we, who we surround ourselves with is what we will ultimately imitate, even if you try not to. So if we want to imitate God, then what does that imply? What does that demand is that the clearest, most prominent person in our vision must be God, must be God. So here's the clear call. The main point I'm giving you as parents, this is the one that if you get this, you get a lot of things free. There's a lot of things to learn in parenting, a lot of good books, a lot of tips. But if you get this, you get a lot of things free. Is that this? You must imitate God because your kids are imitating you. Be imitating God because your kids will be imitating you. For parents here, we ought to be, <clears throat> notice the word ought to, be the greatest influence on our children's conception of what God is like. Because we have the most repetitions with them, most, most proximity with them. So much, as you know, is caught rather than taught. And so we can parent and live in a way before our kids where our kids will read God's word one day as they get older and as they learn and they read something about what God is like and they can say, oh, I kind of know what that's like because my daddy's like that. 
Or my mommy's like that. They'll, they'll recall memories and feelings of, of past moments and times with their parents. and I, I know what that is like. But sadly, many of us here, and I know a lot of your stories, we come from broken households. And so right now the deck is stacked against us. So when we read something about God and then we try to think about earthly represent, representations of God, we, we have a tremendous hard time making those connections because our parents have so marred the image of God before us that we're having work uphill to understand that God is a father and he's trustworthy, he's good. And so I'm really, really grateful and excited because I know that this group, our church, we're going to do something different by God's grace. That our children, yes, we will make mistakes and they're going to struggle at times to make those connections. But by God's grace, more times than not, they're going to be able to see those connections and know what God is like because they know what we're like. Amen? So, here are 10 ways. They're not going to be super long. I didn't do 17 like you did. 10 ways we can imitate God. There's more than this, but this is a great list. If you're taking notes, number one, present and available. If you look at Hebrews chapter four, this idea of going before God with boldness, and you look at the parable in Luke 11 that Jesus teaches about the neighbor waking someone up in the middle of the night for bread. What do these passages put together teach us about the character of God? And that's this. God wants to be interrupted by you. God wants to hear from you. God wants to talk with you. He is deeply present and not irritable when we come to him for requests. With questions, with doubts, or just because we want to be with him. This is contrary to very much of our experiences where we have parents who, you know, they're staring at their phones and having conversations with their kids. Or they're snapping at their kids because their kids are interrupting their work for the 10th time. Or interrupting the game that they're trying to enjoy. God never feels that way towards us. He is infinitely present and ready to sit and listen and be with us. Let us imitate God and how present and available he is with us. Number two, merciful, merciful. At the heart of the Christian faith is a God that forgives. Consider Psalm 103.12 if you're taking notes. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. What we see is that God not only forgives, but he does so in a manner where he no longer holds a sin against us. He forgets it. In like manner, we ought to have that same kind of merciful, forgiving heart towards our children. I don't think any of you here would say, I don't forgive you. Right? If your kids are like, I'm sorry, mom or dad. We say, Apology not accepted. You would never say that. I know you guys. But an unforgiving, unmerciful heart can manifest in other ways as well. Consider that thing that your kid does over and over again. That they keep doing and you told them not to. And you've forgiven them, they've apologized, and they do it again. And instead of treating it on the, in that moment, in that context, we are importing years of frustration over that, that either that specific issue or that category and then just blasting them. You guys know what I'm saying? This unmerciful heart that, that, that is not 
Can you imagine God treating us that way? Every time we fall back into something we've done before, he is importing years of us doing that in that one moment just lashing. Can you imagine that? Who could stand before that? And yet God is not like that towards us. He is patient and he meets us where we're at and he's merciful. God, help us. Let us imitate God in his mercy as he is merciful to us. Number three, disciplines. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, if you're note-taking, Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, I'm not going to read it because it's so long, but what you'll notice here is that discipline, the discipline that God administers to us is from a place of wanting good for the child. It's never punitive. In other words, the penalty has already been taken by Jesus. So God's discipline for us is for our good, for our edification to help us become more like his son. Likewise, Our discipline to children should always be for their good, not because we're getting them back for what they did or teaching them a lesson they'll never forget or some sort of abusive, twisted language that is masquerading as biblical discipline. Discipline like the father is coming from a place that is measured, controlled, thoughtful, in loving. And yet a good father still disciplines. There are two extremes. As Pastor Ross talked about, there's toxic masculinity, which we should reject, but equally as harmful, but often not seen as harmful, is passive masculinity. And one thing that I, I did find is that if you study the scriptures on discipline, fathers are the primary ones charged for discipline. Wives, mothers, you discipline too. But fathers are the primary ones called out to do this. And fathers, if you fail to discipline your children, you are not loving them. Do not believe the lie that not disciplining them is actually loving them well. That is a lie from the world. But you do it measured, self-controlled, thoughtful, loving, That's biblical discipline. Let's discipline like our father disciplines us. Let me me just make one more comment on that. I know that a lot of us here were disciplined by our parents in really harmful, unbiblical ways. I would guess that probably less than 5% of you were ever told exactly what you did wrong, told why you would be uh, disciplined, told how long it would be or what it would be, disciplined and then deeply hugged and loved and prayed with, worked through it with your heart. Like who, who, who got that growing up? <laughs> Just, oh good, well, your parents are right there. So you better raise your hand. <laughs> good, awesome, yeah. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, awesome. But most of us got, I'll teach you a lesson you'll never forget. Or last out, not control, not thoughtful, premeditated, or just completely passive. But either or, know this, all of us are always reacting to something. And if you, no matter what background your parents were like to, you are likely going to try react to it. And if you were harshly disciplined, abused, you will be tending to either repeat it exactly like them because of fallness, but more likely trying to avoid that with a 10 foot stick and not discipline at all. Both are unloving. So we need to be like our father who does it the way he does it. Number four, God has perspective. Perspective. Let me explain that. 
Is there anything that God is correcting you today, this season, that was true of you five years from now, five years ago, but he didn't mention it at all? Yeah? Anyone? I thought this was a good question. Everyone would be like, yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, okay. It, was, it was a poorly said question. It is a good question. Is there anything God is teaching you right now, correcting you in your life, that was probably true of you five years ago, but he just didn't bring it up then? Yeah? Okay, okay, good. All right, yeah. Yeah, right. Why did he do that? Because he has perspective. He's thoughtful. He's loving. He has the big picture in mind. He's taking us on a journey. He wisely leads us each step and holds our hand. He does not overwhelm us to try to become mature overnight. Likewise, fathers and mothers must be careful not to try to help their young child become mature overnight. We must not expect fruit of maturity that does not make sense for their stage of life. Even with the Holy Spirit. So often we are very patient with our process of sanctification, but very impatient with other people. Right? Like you keep falling in the same way and you have all these reasons why three years later. But like that person doesn't have those reasons. You should have got it already. I talked to you twice about it. Right? And that same kind of impatient lack of perspective mindset to our children can be absolutely crushing for them. Where they feel this pressure. And especially if you are a newer parent, our firstborns get the the brunt of it. Don't they? Because you're like, I don't want to screw this up. You must be perfect, right? And so we're still trying to help our firstborn through some of that. You know, like that, that's just the reality that you feel. And you don't like realize what's appropriate for their age. So you're like, wait, you're three. Aren't you reading a book yet? What's wrong with you? Come on, man, read better, right? It's like, you just don't know these things. And so you just, you, you, you don't have perspective. So let us imitate God in his perspective as he is patient with our childishness and immaturity and sees the full picture and patiently leads us along. You know, another thing that with this is that all of us, many of us, I shouldn't say all, many of us were likely going to have children who are going to have seasons where they walk away. And it's going to be the worst thing ever. Dave and Sherry know that. And they've been able to experience the fruit of repentance after years. But remember, God has perspective. He has a bigger picture in mind. And sometimes he needs to lead our children through the valley of the shadow of death so they know how good he is and how deathly the world is. And it will be very, very hard for us as parents to, to watch them do that instead of try to control and make them. And, I, and I'll get into that control in a minute. So let's talk about number five, purity. God is pure. There's no impurity Habakkuk 1.13 says, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. He cannot stand the sight of evil. He is pure. And there are many forms of purity that the Bible talks about. It's not exclusively to lust or sexual sin, but this is ultimately a significant destroyer of families. Is it not? When we have impurity in our hearts, when we love what the world loves, delights in what the world delights in, it will ultimately trickle down to our kids even if we hide it. We've all seen this to be true, where you see somehow even adopted kids who do not live with their parents, never been with their parents, tend to live out the same traits as the parents. And you as parents are doorkeepers into your home. And when you let secret sin live, it does 
come into the home somehow, in some supernatural, mysterious way. So if you are secretly harboring and indulging secret sins of the flesh, don't kid yourself. You may hide it from your spouse. You may hide it from your friends. But you're not hiding it from God. And those demonic effects of that sin will trickle down and affect your children. I know it did for me. In my family. I didn't even know until I was older that that was, stuff was happening in the background. And it was affecting me secretly on top of my own flesh and on top of the world in Satan. So let us imitate God in his purity. Number six, God is faithful, his faithfulness. Too many verses to even begin to describe the faithfulness of God. And we could just sit here and just talk about all the ways he's been faithful. But God is not like man who shifts and changes. He is faithful to his word and his character. He's faithful to do what he says he will do. Faithful to be what he says he will be. One of my new favorite definitions of faithfulness is from John Bloom, uh, a former mentor of mine. He just wrote a book called True to His Word. It's like a little devotional, 100, 100 devotions or 100 meditations on God faithfulness. I recommend it to you if you like devotionals, faithful to his word or true to his word. And his definition of faithfulness is this, being true to your word. You're a faithful person when you're true to your word, when you say something and you're true to it. And the more you're true to it, the more people increase their faith in you. That's what faithfulness is. Not that you have a lot of faith, but people can grow their faith in you because you do what you say you'll do. And you're consistent with it. And God is faithful. God is faithful. But many of us have been hurt by parents who were unfaithful. Unfaithful by being inconsistent with what, how they related with us. Unfaithful to maybe a spouse or unfaithful in their presence. Unfaithful in their commitment or devotion to their family. Unfaithful to their devotion to God. Unfaithful in their work. In so many different ways, their lack of imitating God's faithfulness has had devastating effects on us here in this room, in the world. And we can all give our kids a distorted picture of God's faithfulness when we repeatedly change our mind or break our word. It's just so easy to do as parents. Kids annoying us, you tell them you'll do something to get them off your back, and then you don't want to do it when it comes time to it, right? Just that's a little example that we can all do. Let us imitate the faithfulness of God as he is faithful to us. Number seven, patient. We're almost done with this list. <clears throat> Exodus 34, 6, that really precious passage that talks about what Yahweh is like. As well, many other pastors speak of God's patience. God is patience, patient, and it's hard to fathom. He is so patient with you, church. He's so patient with me. And yet, I believe this is one of the areas we parents struggle the most. Isn't it? Patience. We struggle imitating God's patience. Our kids repeatedly will do something we don't like and therefore we lash out in anger. Or they keep interrupting something that's important to us and therefore we create some ridiculous punishment to pay them back, to teach them a lesson, to never interrupt us again. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a book called Why Children Matter. And I have issues with this author sometimes. But his book is really good. Why Children Matter. He has this one line that makes the whole book worth it. So I'll tell you so you don't have to read it. <laughs> Just kidding. It's still good. He says uh, something like this. When your kid repeatedly bugs you, the real lesson for your kids is not that they should stop that. They should. And they should learn to stop that. But the real lesson for them is how do you respond when someone repeatedly bugs you? 
How do you respond when someone disrespects you? How do you respond when someone doesn't treat you as you ought to be treated? That is the real lesson you are demonstrating for them. In that moment, and in a million moments, our kids, and you, you know this, are witnesses to a million unfortunate effects, unfortunate moments and events throughout our lifetime. And every single time that happens to us, we are modeling to our kids what God's patience is like, how God responds to sinners, how God responds to unfair circumstances. So if we pout, we have self-pity, we, we're grumbling, we're inward, we complain, we're bitter, we're teaching our kids that's how you respond when bad things happen to you. See, the great lesson we teach our kids day and day is not what we teach them by talking to them a lesson, but how we live in response to the fallenness of this world. That's the great lesson. So even if you're not eloquent with your lips and you're not good at devotions and family worship, you should grow in those things. But even if you're not, if you can show your kids how to respond in hardship and, 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 and struggle when people wrong you, you're teaching them the greatest lessons in the world. But on the other hand, if you respond with self-pity, you know how that makes me feel? You make it all about yourself. You are training your kids to be self-centered in their thinking and their response. Teaching them to sulk. You're teaching them to complain by the way you respond. God, help us imitate your patience as you are patient with us. Amen? Amen. Number eight, affectionate. Many of us have fathers who are emotionally unavailable. They lack the ability to connect at the heart level. And so did their fathers and their father's father and their father's father's father. It's a generational curse that has come down. This rampant pandemic of fathers, especially, who do not know how to relate at a heart level with people, with their children especially. And so you've been conditioned that that's what's normal. That is not normal. That's what's common. But that's not God's heart. See, think about the father heart of God. He is not like that. Consider Jesus rising up from the water and the father booms with approval. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. None of that. I have strong feelings for him, but he knows and I don't need to say it. I love him, but, you know, we don't say that. If any of you guys know about those kind of silly sayings like that. He already knows it. Or consider Zephaniah 3.17. If you're like, oh, that's Jesus, Sam. Of course he's pleased with Jesus. Who would be pleased with Jesus? He's perfect. Zephaniah 3.17. Actually, can you just turn to it? Because it's just so good. And I know some of you guys know it, but I just love it. And we haven't talked about it a lot at APC. Can I get a volunteer to read it out loud? Just herald it. Zephaniah 3.17. Just go. Herald it. You can all read it. You hear that? Yahweh God is going to, is singing over them with loud singing, not reserved singing, but loud with gladness. He is affectionate. So if you are not naturally affectionate, either by disposition or by how you were trained by your background, your family, you can learn to be affectionate as you receive the affections of your Heavenly Father. 
So part of imitating our God is that we are abounding in affection and affirmation to our children as he is towards you. Especially if you come from cultures that you didn't do this, it, it's a discipline, it's a skill to growing. You may even be like, son, I am so proud of you. <laughs> and then as you keep doing that, it comes natural. Let us imitate God in his affections as he is affectionate with us. Number nine, contentment. <clears throat> this one's going to hurt. As parents, we tend to feel ashamed when our children misbehave, often because we believe it poorly reflects us. Did anyone see that? Oh, I'm sorry. He's never like that, except all the time. We often will base our... Sorry, I said that. We often base our sense of self-worth on our children's behavior and performance. If they're great, that means I'm great. If they're competent... I'm competent. If they behave well, whatever it is. In other, way, in other ways, we can be needy for our children. On another flip side of this, we look to them for life. If you ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, there's this one scene about a mother who says she loves her son and wants to see her son. But what the, what the guide is trying to teach her is she actually doesn't love her son. She loves herself. And she's trying to find life in her son. And it's selfish. It's abusive. But it looks like love, looks like self-sacrifice, but it's all about her ultimately. And when you look to your children for life, instead of looking to them as an opportunity to to pour out God's love that's been poured out to you, then you have this needy disposition towards them. This is often reflected when people say things like, we wanted a child because we felt empty. Or kids needed to fill a hole in our family. But God is not like us. He loves from a place of overflowing. Within the Trinity, not from a place of needing. He's not lonely. Yes, he deserves our worship and our devotion, but he doesn't need it. Likewise, we must imitate him where we love our kids because God loves us, not because we need their love in return. Because of the gospel, you can love, ferociously love and sacrifice and serve your children because God has done that for you, even if they never reciprocate it ever. But you know that you've fallen off the track when you start resenting them that they're not grateful for you or they're not reciprocating your love and affection back or not obeying or not behaving the way they should in light of how good you are to them. Then that's when you know you've kind of kind of drifted into the realm of needing them and finding life and identity in them. If you need your kids or make your kids your world, it will ultimately hurt you, hurt you and them because you were made for someone and something much greater than them a finite child can be. And they were made for something far grander than what you can be for them. You should never say your children are your world. You cannot be the world for your children. They were not made for you. They were made for some, someone so much greater than you. Give them the world, parents. Give your kids the world, not yourself. Let us imitate God in his contentment and satisfaction. Finally, number 10. Shortest one, because we've taught a lot, of, a lot lately. Imitate his agape, agape love. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another, just as I have agaped you. You also are to agape one another. Remember this word agape love? What is it? It's unconditional. It's proactive. It's not tethered to emotion. It's based on decision and covenant. 
It's persevering. It's sacrificial. This is the kind of love that God gives us daily, has given us most chiefly through his son on the cross and all the day and millions of mercies and ultimately when he's going to come back and rescue us and make this world right and that agape love poured in us, then we can agape love our children. So imitate God and his agape love. Now, before we talk about ruling and reigning, let me say this. <clears throat> and, I, and I promise I'm, I'm, I'm in the realm of landing the plane. I'm not landing the plane yet, but a realm of landing the plane. Okay? Work together as a team. If you have a spouse, and I know that's not always the case. This is the ideal. And if, if you don't have the ideal, then God help us, church, help the church fill in those gaps. But... If you do have a spouse, you have the great privilege of working together, encouraging each other on how to imitate God better together. My wife has different instincts that I do not have, and I cannot tell you how much she has discipled me over the years to show me how I'm parenting my kids. She has rebuked me. That was too harsh, Sam. That was not like the father. That was your flesh. That was reactive. That was unmeasured. And I've been able to be that for her, too, in different ways. Work together with your spouse. Talk regularly on how you guys can better image God to your children in your different, unique ways. Work together regularly talking about it. And most of all, talk regularly on how you can keep God prominent in your vision. Because when he's prominent in your vision, you will imitate him. And if you imitate him, your kids will imitate him. Amen. Now, let me transition briefly to talk about rule and reign, because you remember I said parenting, according to, according to this framework from Genesis one in the image of God is both we image God so our kids will imitate us, but also we extend God's rule and reign to our kids and hopefully through our kids through disciple making. But let's talk about rule and reign briefly. Most scriptures on parenting call both parents to do similar things together. So let me talk about the, a few of the main ones. Look at Ephesians 6.1. So you're already in Ephesians 5, or you used to be. <laughs> Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Both fathers and mothers have authority. It's not fathers only, but children obey your parents. They both have authority and responsibility to lead their children. Res authority and Leadership are inherently together. And the most famous parenting passage is Deuteronomy 6. Let's turn to that one because that's going to be the last passage we really look at. And then we'll be, we, we will be done. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. Did you look at it? All right. Sounds like only two Bibles are turning. So I guess, I guess you guys are turning quietly. This is the most famous passage on parenting in the Bible for most. <clears throat> it starts off with the Shema, Shema Yisrael, all that, all the stuff that is central to our faith. This idea of loving God with everything. Verse six, and these words I, I command you today shall be on your heart. Number, verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And this is the everyday life discipleship. I love this. And shall talk to them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, in all of life, you're teaching your kids all of life. Both parents have the authority and the call to train up our children in loving God. That is the chief call we're calling them to is to love God with all of their being. All the other different things you want to teach them. Good table manners, how to do school well, all those other things. Yes, amen, do that. But chiefly, don't forget, number one, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what you're called to do with your kids. And you do this in everyday life, not only by teaching, but by your affections. Your children are being taught how to love God by the way you love God. Your children are taught how to love God by the way you love God. So if they keep waking up and coming down and they see you on your knees with your Bible open, praying for the lost or praying for them or praying for your own heart that needs growth or delighting in worshiping him, that will teach them more in those moments than a million little lessons in the car. And you should still have those lessons in the car. But we are training our kids how to love the Lord with all our mind and all our soul, all our strength. By the way we love, the way we spend our money. Your kids are watching. They are are absorbing your values and your worship by the way you spend your money and how you spend your free time. And the way where you put your eyes and how you are hospitable to neighbors or the lost or the poor. All of these things are shaping our children to understand what does it mean to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. So if you compartmentalize God in a little, little piece, and even if you're part of the most crazy, intense church ABC, and then you do all that, but if you have these compartmentalized, they'll see it. They know it. They have eyes. They see these things better than any of us do. You are training your children what it means to love God with everything. So if you compartmentalize, you're telling your kids, you can love God compartmentalizing your life. You can love God half-heartedly. You can love God with only some of your finances. You can surrender some, not all, to God. So diligently teach your children the whole of Scripture, but do it in word and in deed. Extend the reign and rule of God by teaching them to observe all that God has committed. And not just obey them, but to love them, to treasure them, to meditate on them, to trust them. And yet in all this I said, we're all going to fail. We're all going to fail. We need to acknowledge that. Our kids will fail as well if they're parents one day. And they need to learn from us now how to deal with that failure, how to deal with our shame. So my final exhortation in this sermon is this. Be lead repenters in your family. Train your kids what to do with their shame. Show and model what to do when you mess it up for the 10th time in the same week. Show them the sweetness of the gospel and the goodness of grace. And yet his grace is still sufficient for your sin. Time and time again, repent to your kids when you lose your temper. Tell them, daddy did it. That was wrong. Daddy was not like father God. I can't tell you how many times I told my kids that. Daddy, God is not like what daddy just did to you. You tell them, you hope, renew their mind so they don't mix mix the messages. God is not like that. And then when you are doing things that are right, let your spouse, and you say, hey, do you see what mommy did? That's what Jesus is like. 
Not just negatively, but point out the positive together. But be lead repenters. Show them the gospel. And so let me sum this all up. We who are made in the image of God are commissioned to spread the likeness, the image, the knowledge of what God is like to the world, but especially our household. And what we imitate, they will imitate. So what we're looking at is what we'll imitate and what they'll look at and what they'll imitate. So I want to ask you very pointedly, are you imitating God today? Is your lifestyle this season that of trying to imitate God? Not perfectly, because he's God, but progressively and truly, because your kids are imitating you, whether you like it or not. Are you extending the rule and reign of God in your children's life? Or are you merely extending your rule and reign over their life? You are not the authority. You have borrowed authority. They're on loan to you. They're not yours. They're the Lord's. And the way we parent communicates that or doesn't. Is the very purpose and vision of your family wrapped up in God's global vision for the world? Or are you dreaming for two small things for your kids? Do you want them to have a great marriage, a good education, a nice home? These are all good things. But are you dreaming big enough? The big dream, the global dream, that this whole world will be saturated with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. We were created and they are created to image God to the world and extend his rule and reign. Settle for nothing less for your family's church. Nothing less. Singles, those who aren't married, if you want to get married, marry someone who's all about this stuff already. Already. You don't just start this when you get married. That's the global purpose all of us are called to, church, to saturate this world with the knowledge of the glory of God. By the way, we imitate God. We will image God towards others. They will follow our likeness. And then we extend the rule and reign of God in our word and deed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in being such a good father to us. Thank you that even though there's a mystery in your essence, that we have a faithful, dependable, rock-solid God that we can bank on. Know that there are, in many ways, our parents have failed us and distorted the image of God to us. You are redeeming it, and you are not, you are not incapable of redeeming what was stolen. I thank you, God, that in this room, you've already done a healing work in many of us, restoring what it means to be a child of God. And I pray for more, more, Lord, more, more healing, more revelation of who you are. Help us see you right Father, I pray that you would help us raise up a generation of children who know what God is like by the way we treat them, the way we live, the way we respond to hardship and trials, the way we spend our free time, the way we spend our money, that our kids can imitate us as we are imitating Christ. We can't do that alone. So Lord, help the gospel go deeper because we will fail. And we need the gospel to freshly ground us, freshly transform us, freshly strengthen us, Lord. I pray that you would cover us with your grace and gospel right now, the different shame that we can feel. Mommy shame, dad shame is a real thing. We just feel the weight all the time that we're never enough. We didn't do well enough. Thank you, Lord, that it's not all up to us, Lord. Thank you that you're the one who's going to ultimately do the heart-changing work. 
So we just bank on you. We depend on you. We pray that you strengthen us. You help us be faithful. And you'd forgive us when we fall. And help us go deeper in the gospel and all of this. And we thank you, God, that you're worth imitating. Oh, how terrible it would be if you were not worth imitating. But we have a God that is so beautiful and worthy of imitation. Help us imitate that, this beautiful God. And help our kids imitate us as we imitate you. In Jesus' name.